Okay, so welcome to lecture four in contract law. And today we're going to continue talking about the rule about offers in contract law. So just to refresh your memories, in order for there to be a binding legal contract, two of the most important conditions that need to be satisfied is that there must be an offer, and that offer must be accepted. And in law, an offer is viewed as a clear statement or representation made by one party, known as the offeror, to another party, the offeree, that demonstrates a willingness to be bound by specific contractual terms as soon as those terms are accepted by the offeree. Now, in the previous lecture, we discussed a couple of complications to that rule and examined certain things that do not count as offers in law. So I said that an offer needs to be distinguished from a request for or supply of information. So if people are negotiating over the terms of a contract, it's very common for them to exchange important bits of information about, let's say, the price and the terms on which they would be willing to supply a good or service. But supplying that information does not count as an offer. Also, an offer needs to be distinguished from an invitation to treat or an advertisement or display of goods, which is viewed as inviting another party to enter into negotiations for a contract or inviting another party to make an offer to purchase certain goods or services. Despite that, I pointed out there's a complication to that idea insofar as a unilateral offer can count as a legally binding offer or a legally valid offer. So some kinds of advert, given the wording within them and how they demonstrate the party's intentions, can count as offers. And the most famous illustration of this in contract law and possibly the most famous case in contract law is the case of Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokeball, where you have the Carbolic Smokeball company offering a reward to people who use their product effectively, following the instructions. And this reward is set out in an ad, and the court deems it to be the case that the wording of the ad is such that the Carbolic Smokeball company are effectively making a unilateral offer to the world, agreeing to be bound by certain conditions. So if somebody uses the product and doesn't achieve the desired results, namely they catch influenza in this case, they will be entitled to claim the reward. Now before I go on to discuss a couple of other things about offers today, I just want to dwell a little bit more on the Carlisle versus Kabbalah Smokeball case, because it's interesting. And also I want to highlight one aspect of it that leads to complications in subsequent cases. So if you recall, as I was going through the judgment or reasoning of Lord Justice Bowen in that case, I said he focused a lot on the wording within the advert, and he suggested that the wording in particular demonstrated the company's willingness or intention to be bound by specific terms and conditions. Now, there's just two points to note about that. The first is that when Bowen is making that judgment call, he is adopting that objective approach to interpreting how a contract works or whether the parties are in agreement. So he's focusing on what a reasonable third party reading the wording of the advert would conclude. It's very clear from the facts of the case that the company themselves don't think that the ad was an offer, or they're certainly arguing very strenuously that they didn't think that. So you could say subjectively from their perspective, if a company has a perspective, they didn't think that this was a legally binding offer. But he is saying from the objective standpoint, it is. So that's just an illustration of that objective approach to interpreting a contract at work. And we're going to encounter that objective approach over and over in this course. 
The other thing I wanted to pick up on was that, you know, the company's defense to this argument was that, well, clearly what they were doing was just mere advertising puffery. It was a hyperbolic set of claims designed to sell a product. And what I want to explore now is just whether there are circumstances in which objectively an ad might appear to be very much like the ad in Carlisle versus Carbolic Smoke Bowl, but the court decides that, yes, it is clearly just advertising puffery. It's just intended to sell a product. It's not intended to be taken seriously as a unilateral offer. And there is, in fact, a case on this point, a very amusing case in some ways. And it's the case of Leonard versus PepsiCo Company. So this is an American case. It's from New York State and has no binding authority in in Ireland. But it is, as I say, a, a useful illustration of this point. So what are the facts of the case? So in the 1990s, Pepsi ran a promotional offer whereby anyone that purchased a can of Pepsi would attain certain points, which they could then use in exchange for certain goods in a catalog that was created by Pepsi. So this is actually a very common style of promotional offer by companies. And most of the goods that you could acquire using your Pepsi points were useful, if not particularly remarkable goods. So things like sunglasses, backpacks, music players, a discman at the time. But Pepsi ran an ad on television, which you can actually view on YouTube. You can look this up and watch the ad if you like, to highlight this scheme for its customers. And within the ad, they included one kind of ridiculous item that you could acquire using your Pepsi points. And the item in question was a Harrier jump jet. So a very sophisticated piece of military technology. So the ad depicted a guy on his way to school who had various items of clothing and apparel that he had acquired using the Pepsi Point system, but it also then had this Harrier jet that he used to drive or fly to school in. And at the very end of the ad, there was a statement that came up on the screen that said you could acquire the Harrier fighter jet for 7 million Pepsi Points. So I think most of us watching that ad would say, this is clearly ridiculous, it's a bit of fun to highlight the promotional scheme, and certainly none of us are going to go out of our way to acquire 7 million Pepsi points. But of course, there's always somebody out there who takes these things a little bit more seriously. And there was one such person, a guy called John Leonard. So John Leonard realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be possible to acquire 7 million Pepsi points. It was unreasonable to expect him to do so. So instead, he exploited a loophole within the Pepsi catalog and the terms and conditions of its promotional points scheme. So within the Pepsi catalog, it stated that if you didn't have sufficient points to acquire the good that you wanted, you could purchase additional points, provided that you had a certain limited supply of Pepsi points already from actually purchasing cans of Pepsi. So in particular, you could purchase additional Pepsi points for 10 cents per point. So Leonard acquired 15 Pepsi points by purchasing cans of Pepsi, and then purchased the remaining Pepsi points, the 6,999,985 points that he needed to get the Harrier jet, with a check that he sent to PepsiCo for just over $700,000. So when Pepsi refused to supply him with the Harrier jet, and bearing in mind that a Harrier jet at the time was worth about $23 million, the notion that you could purchase it for $700,000 seems, again, faintly ridiculous. 
Their stance seems reasonable enough, but Leonard nonetheless brought a case against Pepsi, which was eventually heard in New York. Now, suffice to say, Leonard was not successful in trying to make his claim against Pepsi. But the reasoning of the court in response to his claim is quite interesting. And now, there are several grounds for why they refuse his claim. But the one that I'm interested in is the one that follows up on the point from Carlisle versus Carbolic Smoke Bowl, which is that the judge claims that nobody watching the ad, no reasonable person, third party watching the ad, could have believed that Pepsi were actually going to supply a Harrier jump jet to somebody for 7 million Pepsi points. And what's interesting about the judgment is that the judge focuses a lot on the aesthetic and directorial choices made in the ad. So it's worth reading for that. So he focuses a lot on the depiction of the characters within the ad and how it all seems satirical, amped up, hyperbolic, and clearly not intended to be taken seriously. So just like Lord Justice Bowen, he doesn't just take the company's word for it. He doesn't just take Pepsi's word for it that they didn't intend to be bound. He focuses on the details of the ad that they were presenting to the public and fortunately for PepsiCo, agrees that the ad was meant to be satirical. Now, the aftermath to this case is interesting as well because Pepsi continued to air the ad on TV, but they changed some features of it. So they said that it required 700 million Pepsi points to acquire the Harrier jet, and they also added a disclaimer at the end of the ad saying that they were just kidding. Okay, so that's kind of an amusing follow-up to the Carlisle versus Carbolic Smoke Bowl case, but it also then again does illustrate this important point, that in deciding whether something constitutes a unilateral offer, the courts are going to actually pay a lot of attention to the details of the ad or poster or whatever it happens to be that is alleged to contain this unilateral offer. Okay, so I think we've spent enough time on unilateral offers. I want to move on now to discuss two other topics in relation to offers that I think are important. And the first topic has to do with auctions and tenders, and the other topic has to do with the revocation of offers. So let's talk a little bit about auctions and tenders. So you can think of auctions and tenders as specifically constructed games, artificially constructed games for negotiating and finalizing a contract. So in the typical auction, you go into an auction house, certain items are put up for sale, an auctioneer displays them and then invites people to bid on those items. And the rules of auctions vary, but typically the rule is that the highest bid wins the auction and therefore is entitled to the goods in question. Tenders are somewhat similar to auctions. It usually arises where you're trying to purchase or sell goods or services and you invite people to present tenders or bids for the supply or purchase of those goods and services. So tendering is very common in the public sector in Ireland, and there is indeed a legal requirement in place that the public sector has to tender supply contracts and sale of some items over a certain value. So for example, when the university is selling sites on campus to people who will supply food to students within the student restaurants, they have to put that out to tender and invite bids by different potential suppliers of the food in the student restaurants. Now, I could talk for a long time about auctions and tenders. They mightn't seem like the most interesting thing on the face of it, but they are actually quite interesting from an economic perspective. Because if you recall, one of the things I said in the earlier lectures is that there's a general assumption that if parties get together in a market and freely negotiate over the price of goods and services, they'll reach a trade or exchange that is efficient, that is welfare maximizing for those two parties. 
And one of the things that is known about auctions and tenders is that people who control the conditions or rules of an auction and tender can oftentimes set them up so that they aren't necessarily efficiency maximizing. In fact, there is a phenomenon in the world of auctions known as the winner's curse, which is that people who often win at an auction regret winning because they feel like they've overpaid for something. And there is some evidence to suggest that on occasion, if there's like a bidding war at an auction, it is true that goods can be sold for an excessive price. Now, if we were in class, I might give you a specific demonstration of that, but I won't bother on this occasion since we're not. And instead, I'll just proceed to describe some of the rules that have been established around auctions and tenders. So let's start with auctions. So the basic rule here is that when an auctioneer puts items up for sale within an auction, they are not offering them for sale. Instead, people come into the auction house and they make bids for that item, and the bids constitute offers, which are then either accepted or rejected by the auctioneer through some kind of signal. So at the end of the traditional auction, the auctioneer will hammer a podium, and the falling of the hammer onto the podium is a sign that they have accepted the most recent offer, the most recent bid. Now, there is one major complication to this idea, which is that there are sometimes two different kinds of auctions. There are so-called reserve auctions and without reserve auctions. So in a reserve auction, there is a reserve price for the goods in question. It's kind of an insurance price for the seller. So if the bids at the auction fall below the reserve price, the seller is indicating that they're not willing to part with them. And so bids that fall short of the reserve price can't be accepted by the auctioneer. Contrast that then with a without reserve auction, which is when you're selling the goods without a reserve price. And what the courts have decided, and this is also now set out in statute law under the Sale of Goods Acts, is that the highest bona fide offer, highest bona fide bid at a without reserve auction has to be accepted by the auctioneer. So there's a sense in which a without reserve auction is a kind of unilateral offer, stating that whichever is the highest bona fide bid, we commit ourselves to accepting that and selling the good to that person. And so that means without reserve auctions can be kind of risky from the perspective of the auctioneer, because what if the goods at the auction don't reach a very high price? What if there are very few people at the auction? There's only one or two bids. Sometimes you might be selling goods at a significant undervalue. Nevertheless, the courts have taken a hard enough line on this and said that even if they are at a significant undervalue, you're committed to selling them to the highest bona fide bidder. I just want to mention two cases that illustrate this point, and both of them are English cases. One of them is the case of Warlow versus Harrison from 1859. So here you have a public auction for a horse. It's a without reserve auction. The plaintiff bids 60 guineas for the for the horse, which is considered to be an underprice. The plaintiff is the highest bona fide bidder. But at the auction, the owner of the horse, seeing the plaintiff's bid for 60 guineas, bids 61 guineas. And as soon as the owner bids 61 guineas, the auctioneer knocks down the hammer and concludes the auction. So Warlow isn't very happy about this because he thinks that the owner's bid is not a good faith bid. It's not a bona fide bid. And the court agrees with him. He says that at a without reserve auction, sorry, the court says that at a without reserve auction, the auctioneer 
is committing to sell to the highest bona fide bidder. Since the owner was not a, a bona fide bidder, he wasn't bidding in good faith, he was just trying to prevent the plaintiff from getting the horse, his bid could not be counted. So fast forward then from 1859 to the year 2000, and you have a similar-ish case in the UK of Barry v. Davies. This is from the year 2000, where you have two bits of engineering equipment, engine analyzers that are put up for sale at a without-reserve auction. Now, the market price of these machines, these goods, was estimated to be approximately £28,000. But there was only one bidder at the auction, and he bid £400 for them. And the auctioneer refused to sell them for that price and subsequently sold them off to a third party for £1,500. And the plaintiff sued the auctioneer then for the value of the goods. And this was on the grounds that he was the highest bona fide bidder at the auction, and so the auctioneer was committed to entering into a contract with him. And he was successful, and the court held that he was able to recover the value of the goods in damages from the auctioneer. So he was able to recover... £27,600 from the auctioneer. And the court made clear the hard line that they take on these cases, that at a without-reserve auction, there is an implicit offer by the auctioneer to accept the highest bidder, whoever that may be, and whatever price they might bid. Just to be clear, there are also Irish cases that are relevant to this point, and there is an interesting Irish case called Tully versus the Irish Land Commission of 1961 that adds an additional complication to this notion about the distinction between without reserve and reserve auctions. So the case of Tully involves the auctioning of lands, public lands, by the Irish Land Commission. And the ad states clearly that there is a reserve price, but the ad also stated that the Land Commission were willing to sell to the highest bidder that met various other terms and conditions. And so even though this was a reserve price auction, the court held that the Irish Land Commission were bound to sell the land to the highest bidder that met the other terms and conditions set out within the ad for the auction. So again, a lot of this hinges on the specific wording of the terms of the the auction. Let's move on then to talk about tenders. So it's pretty much the same approach is taken with tenders as there is for auctions. So the tenderee in law is the person who controls the bidding process within a tender. So they're the ones that impose the conditions and say you have to submit tenders for the following thing by the following date and time. And the people who submit the tenders are viewed in law as making offers, and those offers are then accepted by the tenderee. Nevertheless, courts have imposed certain rules to prevent the abuse of power within the tendering process that effectively mean that a tenderee has to accept bona fide tenders that meet certain conditions. So let me just mention two cases that illustrate this point. The first case is Harvela Investments versus the Royal Trust of Canada. This is an English case from 1986. And so the facts of the case are that the Royal Trust of Canada, which is a company, invited tenders for the purchasing of stock that the company happened to own. And they stated within the ad for this tender that they would accept the highest bid. So it seems pretty straightforward, but then you have people submitting tenders that try to game the process. So you have Harvela Investments that are an investment company, and they submit a tender to the Royal Trust of Canada saying that they bid $2,175,000 Canadian dollars for the company shares. 
And then you have a second bidder, a guy called Leonard Outerbridge, or Sir Leonard Outerbridge, who submits a tender saying that he will pay $2.1 million or he will pay $101,000 in excess of any other offer you may receive, whichever is higher. So Sir Leonard is trying to be a bit of a clever clogs here by including this referential bid that refers to any other potential bid and tries to ensure that his bid is higher than any other possible bid. Now, maybe unsurprisingly, the Royal Trust of Canada accepts his bid, and their argument was that it was, after all, the highest bid. But Harvelia Investments weren't happy about this, and they brought a case. And the House of Lords held here that Sir Leonard Outerbridge's offer was invalid, that the tendering process was set up in such a way that there was an offer by the Royal Trust of Canada to accept whichever happened to be the highest bid. It was almost like, again, a unilateral offer. If you are the highest bidder, then we accept your bid. And they ruled, the House of Lords ruled, that Leonard Outerbridge's offer was invalid because it wasn't properly formulated so as to be the highest bid. Now, I have to say I struggle a little bit with the reasoning in this case as to what was so wrong with his bid, but I think what it boils down to is the court just didn't like the fact that he was trying to game the tendering process, and that if the tendering process is going to work at all, it has to be the case that people submit very precise amounts that they are willing to pay, and they can't include these kinds of, well, I'll pay a little bit more if somebody else happens to bid slightly more than me. So it's effectively a policy rule. It's a judgment call that these kinds of bids are not to be allowed. And you mightn't like that, but it is quite similar to the reasoning, in a sense, in Warlow v. Harrison, where the court said that the bid at the auction by the owner of the horse was invalid. Again, it's hard to understand why is that invalid, except that it's a judgment call by the court, a policy call, saying that the owner is not allowed to bid for his own horse in an effort to prevent somebody else from getting it at a lower price. So it's a similar kind of reasoning taking place here, that Leonard Outerbridge can't game the system to his own advantage. Now, there's another case on tendering that I wanted to mention, which is the Blackpool and Filed Arrow Club versus Blackpool Borough Council case. So this involves a local council inviting tenders for the right to operate pleasure flights from a local airport. And the invitation for tenders states the following... The council do not bind themselves to accept all or any part of any tender, and no tender which is received after the 17th of March 1983, noon, shall be admitted for consideration. So that wording seems clear enough. They're not binding themselves to accept any tender, and they are stating that they won't even consider a tender that is submitted after a certain date and time. Now, Blackpool filed Aero Club, submit a tender, and they dropped it in the appropriate box in the Borough Council's offices, and they did so before noon on the 17th of March 1983. Now, the council did not check this submission box until the following day, and when they did so, they refused to consider the tender from Blackpool and filed Aero Club on the grounds that it was late. Now, the club then brought a case, arguing that the council, even if it wasn't bound to accept their tender, they were at least bound to consider it. And so in a sense, what the club are arguing is that there's a side contract or a separate contract 
Irrespective of whether they get the right to operate the pleasure flights, the way in which the tendering process has been set up is such that it creates another contract between themselves and Blackpool Borough Council that Blackpool Borough Council will at least consider offers that are submitted by the appropriate date and time. And interestingly enough, the court agrees with Blackpool and Filed Aero Club. And in a portion of the judgment, Lord Justice Bingham says the following. He says that, It is, of course, true that the invitation to tender does not explicitly state that the council will consider timely and conforming tenders, but the council does not say either that it does not bind itself to do so. And in the context, a reasonable invitee would understand the invitation to be saying quite clearly that if he submitted a timely and conforming tender, it would at least be considered. So I think that's an important complication here that's illustrated by the, this case, that there is this potential for a side contract as part of the tendering process. So let me move on then to the final topic that I wanted to talk about in relation to offers, which has to do with the revocation of offers. So if you make an offer to purchase or sell a good or service, you know, a statement demonstrating a willingness to be bound by specific terms and conditions, you are entitled to revoke that offer, to back out of a potential deal or a potential contract, provided that you revoke it prior to the acceptance of the offer by another party. And again, you might wonder, why do we allow the revocation of offers? And it seems the obvious explanation or rationale for doing so is because it has something to do with freedom of contract, that it protects an individual's freedom of choice to allow them to revoke an offer prior to acceptance, prevents them from getting bound up in contracts that they don't want to be bound up in. Nevertheless, the rule is strict here. If the revocation does not occur prior to acceptance, then you are bound by a contract if it has been accepted. So there's a few cases that I just want to run through on this. And one of the most famous ones is a case called Byrne versus Van Tienhoven. And this is interesting because it's the first of a series of cases that we'll be looking at where the timelines involved in different communications is important to understanding the case. And it's very common in exams to set up complex fact patterns that we ask students to analyze and apply rules of contract to where the timing of different communications becomes important. So this is the first of a series of cases that have this feature. So again, it's worth paying attention to this. So sadly, you know, the actual substantive facts of the Byrne versus Van Tienhoven case, as with many contract law cases, are not exactly earth-shatteringly exciting. It involves the sale of tin plate at a fixed price. But what we have here are companies exchanging letters and telegrams, and they're being sent back and forth between Cardiff in Wales and New York. So Byrne is located in Cardiff, and Van Tienhoven is located in New York. So the case itself is decided in 1880. I can't remember when the facts of the case arose, but obviously they predated 1880. So what happens is that on October 1st, Byrne in Cardiff sends a letter to Van Tienhoven in New York offering to sell them tin plate at a fixed price. This letter is not received by Van Tienhoven in New York until the 11th of October, so 10 days after it was sent. On the 8th of October, Byrne in Cardiff sends another letter revoking the offer for sale, and this was due to the fact that the price of tin plate had increased substantially in the intervening period, so they were no longer willing to sell it at this fixed price. And this letter revoking the offer for sale is not received by Van Tienhoven in New York until 
October 20th. So 12 days later. So see what's happened here. There's an initial letter sent on the 1st of October. It's not received by Van Tienhoven until the 11th of October. In the intervening period, a subsequent letter has gone out from Bern revoking the offer. But what happens is when Van Tienhoven receives the letter with the offer for sale on the 11th of October, they send a telegram, and a telegram is an instantaneous form of communication, or at least relatively instantaneous form of communication, back to Bern on the 11th of October, accepting the offer from October the 1st, and this telegram is received by Bern on the 11th of October. So as you can imagine, Bern are going to try to argue here that, well, they're not bound by the contract because they've revoked the offer. But the court actually sides with Van Tienhoven and says that the offer was still good when it was accepted by Van Tienhoven on the 11th of October because the revocation had not been effectively communicated to Van Tienhoven before the 11th. They didn't receive the letter until the 20th of October. Now, I just want to make a note about this case that mightn't make any sense to you now, but will make sense to you subsequently when we discuss the rules about acceptance, which is that this case illustrates very clearly that the postal rule does not apply to the revocation of offers. So we'll come back to what that means later on and what the postal rule is, but just put a flag in this case because it shows you that the postal rule does not apply to the revocation of offers. There's a couple of other points I wanted to make about revocation. One point is that revocation must occur prior to the fulfillment of any of the conditions under the contract. So even if there hasn't been a formal acceptance, if another party starts to fulfill some of the conditions of the contract, then there may still be a binding contract. So the English case of Errington v. Errington and Woods appears to illustrate this point. So what happened here is that you have a Mr. Errington who buys a house for his son and daughter-in-law. This is a case from the 1950s in the UK as well, just a note. And the agreement was that he would pay cash and secure the mortgage for them, but they would then pay off the mortgage at a fixed rate. He promised the couple that they could stay in the house as long as they kept paying off the mortgage and that the house would be theirs after the final repayment of the mortgage. So the crucial point here is that the structure of the promise is such that if they pay off the mortgage, then the house will be theirs after the final repayment. So there seems to be a contract that stating that if certain conditions are fulfilled, namely the repayment of the mortgage, the house will become theirs. So Mr. Errington dies before the mortgage is paid off. The son breaks up with the daughter-in-law. He moves out of the house and goes to live with his mother. The mother had inherited the husband's estate under her husband's will, and the mother and the son then tried to eject the daughter-in-law from the house. And the court said that they couldn't do this because the daughter-in-law had started living in the house and had started to make repayments. And so you couldn't revoke the offer because she was, in essence, in train in the process of fulfilling the conditions set out under the offer. Another point about offers is that sometimes courts decide that offers have lapsed even if they haven't been formally revoked after a reasonable period of time. So the case from the 1800s, a case called Ramsgate Victoria Hotel versus Montefiore from 1866 that illustrates this point. So here you have the defendant, Montefiore, offering to purchase shares from Ramsgate at a particular lump sum price. Ramsgate accepts the offer six months later, and during this period of time, the six months, the value of the shares had fallen dramatically. 
and the defendant refuses to purchase the shares. Ramsgate tries to enforce the deal, and the court said that given the subject matter, shares which are prone to fluctuations in price, it was reasonable to infer that the offer had lapsed after a certain period of time, and certainly six months later was outside that reasonable period of time. Another point about revocations is that revocations can sometimes lapse due to the failure of a condition precedent in a contract. So this is an interesting phenomenon. A condition precedent is a condition that has to be fulfilled before a contract is deemed to come into existence. And one of the most famous examples of a condition precedent to a contract, which some of you will be familiar with, is the provision of satisfying references for a job application. So sometimes offers of employment are said to be conditional upon the receipt of adequate references from your former employee, or sorry, former employer. So that's technically a condition precedent to a contract, that if that condition isn't fulfilled, then there isn't a binding employment contract. But there are other examples of condition precedents. So there's a case called Financings Limited versus Stimson. Again, it's an English case from the 1960s that illustrates this point as it applies to revocation. So Stimson here had purchased a car on hire purchase, on credit, and the deal stipulated that his offer to buy the car had to be accepted by a financing company, Financing Limited, the plaintiffs in this case. Stimson takes the car away, he insures it, but then decides that he doesn't like it and returns it. The car was then stolen from the garage that he returned it to and damaged The financing company were unaware of all of these facts about the damage to the car and the return to the garage, and they accepted his offer to buy, and they tried to enforce the contract. The court held, however, that the offer was subject to the condition precedent that the car remain in an undamaged state. So once the car was damaged, the offer lapsed because that condition precedent was not met. Okay, so two last points, and then we will finally wrap up. What happens if the offeree or the offeror in a contract dies? So the basic rule here, and set out in a case called Reynolds v. Atherton from 1921, it's an English authority, suggests that the death of an offeree leads to the lapse of the contract, and the acceptance of an offer cannot be enforced upon the estate. Nevertheless, there are some older cases, Bradbury v. Morgan from 1860s, 1862 rather, suggests that if an offeree is unaware of the death of an offeror, this does not affect a contract. So it seems that death usually leads to the lapse or failure of a contract, but in certain cases where there's a lack of awareness of death and this lack of awareness is deemed to be reasonable, that might mean that the contract is still valid. Okay, that's a lot of detail I appreciate at the very end of this lecture, but that's where we're going to conclude, and that's where we're going to conclude the discussion of offers initially. We're going to move on in the next lecture to talk about acceptances, which is, again, the mirror image or flip side of offer. And so you do actually really need to think about the rules of offer and the rules of acceptance together.